Holy One, we thank you and praise you for your words of Scripture, for your words of life. We ask that you would pour out upon us again your Holy Spirit, that we might hear new your stories, that, we might, that they might speak to us anew today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing, O Lord, in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Today we find ourselves in book two of our fall journey through the Old Testament after a brief break last week. This means moving on from Genesis to Exodus, which is still very much at the beginning of things. And as we continue, it's good to keep in mind that a lot of this early material in the Bible it has a simple purpose. It's there to explain how we human beings have come to find ourselves in a difficult spot and how God is working on fixing it on rescuing us, as it was in the beginning, is now too. So we read these ancient stories with an eye for how God would have us engage today. For example, a couple weeks ago, I shared with you an account of Joseph, whose brother sold him down the river to Egypt, where he went from being a slave to becoming the right-hand man of the king. I only scratched the surface of what all led to that migration of the people of God. But in the end, that's what it was, a story of migration, an immigrant story, which is both ancient and current. Joseph's family migrated from the land of Canaan, which had been promised to his ancestors, and his people became immigrants in the empire of Egypt. This was partly due to family dysfunction, partly on account of a natural disaster, a famine. There was some ethnic tension involved too. All of these things continue to contribute to the migration of people groups today. Like with the Venezuelan asylum seekers who are staying at the Holiday Inn in countryside, and the Syrian refugees who are reportedly taking residence at an apartment building in LaGrange. Those migrants also have complex stories, stories that we may only know about in broad outline. So Joseph's story in Scripture helps us to better understand and engage these neighbors that we have today. But today's story is focused now on what happened to God's people in their new land as strangers and aliens in the Egyptian empire. How at first they were welcomed as refugees, but then generations later they became targeted, exploited, and oppressed. We're told in in Exodus 1 that their oppression began with a change in national leadership. There arose a politician in Egypt who had no regard for the descendants of Joseph. And as often happens in totalitarian regimes... This new ruler realized that he could solidify power by singling out a relatively weak minority group and calling them an enemy. This king sought to unify his base by playing on his people's fear of outsiders. So Pharaoh said to his fellow Egyptians, look at all these Israelites. There's too many of them. And they're so strong. 
What if they side with our enemies and fight against us? We've got to do something about this. Someone has to keep them in their place. Now, can you think of any historical examples of national leaders saying something similar? Like maybe Hitler and Nazi Germany, scapegoating Jewish people. Or the Afrikaner government in, during apartheid, subduing the black population of South Africa. And how about in this country? The way Native Americans were annihilated and people of African descent made into slaves. We also remember how Japanese people during World War II were put in internment camps because some politicians were afraid that they would side with our enemies. The latest iteration of this xenophobic strategy comes from those who today label migrants from low-income countries as a threat to national security. White nationalists continue to, to fear that people of color will rise up against them to cancel their culture and to replace them at their jobs. Well, the book of Exodus reminds us that this type of fear-mongering has been around since the very beginning. And sadly, it continues to this day. And yet we're also reminded in our reading that this is not the end of the story. It's only the beginning. The first chapter of Exodus relates how over the course of 400 years, the Egyptians went from celebrating the Israelites to conscripting them for forced labor, to then making them slaves, to then finally calling for genocide. But then the rest of the book is about how God intervened, how God delivered the people from that terrible situation. And this is also what's possible for us today. The main story of Exodus is about the resistance of God's people in the midst of oppression. And interestingly, how it all began with a handful of women, five of them that we know of. The Nile Five is is the way I think of them now, the Nile Five. Perhaps you've heard of Moses and Aaron, maybe their followers, Joshua and Caleb too, but before them... We should remember that God's intervention began with some lesser-known people, some women. What can we learn from them? The story goes that Pharaoh approached two midwives to embark on his program of infanticide. He said to these women, if it's a boy, kill them. If it's a girl, she can live. Well, we now know that this strategy was a big mistake. Because, as the midwives told Pharaoh later, the Hebrew women were strong. And he should not have underestimated them. Taking away the men simply meant that the women would rise up. And they did. Perhaps if Pharaoh had heard the story of Rebekah, he would have known better. But Pharaoh, of course, was a fool. As are so many powerful men today. Pharaoh shouldn't have gone to these midwives for help at all. Didn't he know that midwives are trained to bring forth life and not to destroy it? 
Did Pharaoh think he could intimidate these women, bend them to his will? He did. And he was wrong, as are so many cowardly rulers. Shifra and Pua did not share Pharaoh's fear of the Hebrews, nor were they afraid of this self-important man. But they did have a healthy fear of the one who has true power over life and death, the God of all creation. And when forced to choose between the will of God and the will of a man, these courageous women chose to obey God, to choose life. This was their small act of resistance, the one that kicked off an entire movement. And it came through a couple of ordinary women in the midst of their ordinary work. Can we imagine something similar happening today? What is our ordinary work? Do we, like these midwives, do anything that brings forth life in others? Is it possible that God could even use us, ordinary people, to support a movement for justice? Simply by being true to our values, by upholding God's will, Incidentally, I learned an interesting thing about the story this week. It turns out that the description of the midwives in the original language, it's ambiguous. It could either be that Shifra and Pua were Hebrew midwives, or that they were simply midwives to the Hebrews, meaning that they might have actually been Egyptians. I think that would actually explain why Pharaoh was talking to them directly and why he expected them to obey, which they did not. Pharaoh thought that Shifra and Pua were his kind of people. And yet, sometimes resistance can even come from the inside, from privileged people, from sympathizers, from allies. So I now wonder if the first act of non-cooperation in this story actually came from women of privilege. Women who had a certain amount of power and leveraged it to help protect a more vulnerable population. Can you imagine doing something like that? I also noticed that Shifra and Pua were very crafty and shrewd in their deception of Pharaoh. As were no doubt those who sheltered Jews during the Holocaust and those who harbored African-American slaves along the Underground Railroad. There are still people today who protect and support undocumented migrants. Others who quietly give aid to homeless squatters and people on death row or formerly incarcerated people. We know that some types of assistance can be controversial still, like in Mendenhall, where they have a house for convicted sex offenders. Or in Planned Parenthood clinics, where some forms of care are now against the law. But Shifra and Pua were willing to risk going against convention and against the rule of law because they feared God and were willing to become, be known as radicals, radicals of love, of life, 
And for this, God rewarded them. Not only did they get away with it, but they were blessed with households as well, meaning family and financial security. A similar account is told here about the other three women who sparked this famous exodus revolt, this exodus out of Egypt. The five women at the beginning of Exodus didn't necessarily work together, maybe not intentionally, but one theme of this story is that societies don't don't change because of just one person. We may remember, for instance, that Moses needed Aaron's help in the work of liberation, but even before that, it took a whole community of people just to raise up those particular leaders. Moses stood on the shoulders of these five women in particular, another one of whom was his mother, the woman who figured out a way to save her baby boy from slaughter by placing him in a miniature ark and setting him afloat in the waters of the Nile River. That was also a crafty move on her part, if you think about it. The law said that she was supposed to cast her boy into the water, but it didn't say that he had to sink. And there was no law against putting the child in the water just upriver from the royal palace where he might get noticed and taken in. Part of the fun of this tale is is how orchestrated the plan seems to be. This family comes across like a bunch of con artists in a great way. The way they had the older daughter, Miriam, watching over baby Moses as he floated into view of the princess. How they'd set it up so that Moses' mother would then get paid to care for her own child. How genius is that? The whole thing goes down like an elaborate heist. Move over, Kaiser Sose. Forget about Ocean's Eleven. The first and best crime story is an ancient account in the Bible of the Nile Five. These women who outsmarted a dictator in order to save and raise up a liberator. What an odd and wonderfully subversive story. I mean, have you ever thought about caring for infants and children as a form of resistance? A way to bring forth God's reign in the world? Women protecting and nurturing babies. What could be more innocuous than that? And yet this is how God first brought about a revolution. Through common acts of caring. Do we do any of those things? If so, maybe we too are liberators. And we just didn't know it was the word. And then finally, there was Pharaoh's daughter, who we shouldn't forget as one of the the Nile Five. Again, I think it's remarkable that three of these five nonviolent resistors in the story, they weren't even in the persecuted group. Pharaoh's daughter was surely Egyptian. And though she may have been manipulated a bit by Moses' sister and mother, it was still her decision to go against her father's command and adopt a Hebrew boy as her own. She had to have known what the law was, that Hebrew boys were meant to be killed, not adopted. But daughters do sometimes have a tendency to rebel. 
And fathers sometimes are more inclined to overlook their daughter's resistance than they are that of others. So it makes sense how this brave woman also used her position to do what she could out of compassion, out of concern for life and justice, perhaps also out of reverence for God. Her privilege wasn't a barrier in this story, but rather a tool. So how could we use whatever privilege we have to protect and nurture vulnerable vulnerable people in our day and age? Where what might we find opportun- opportunities to speak up or to intervene? Have you ever thought about this as the mission of the church? Did you know in, that in Scripture this is what it means to fear God? Friends, our context hasn't changed much in all these many centuries. There are still oppressed peoples around the world, including here in our area, who cry out to God for freedom, for justice. We tend to long for, sometimes to wait for a a great leader like a Moses or a Deborah or a Martin Luther King. But first, God often provides in the form of a handful of ordinary people just like us. Each one of us contributing to God's reign through everyday acts of compassion and care. Today, as it was in the beginning, we may not always be that organized. We may not be as sophisticated or heroic as were the Nile Five. But still, our work helps prepare the way for God's kingdom to come for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven until Christ comes again in glory to set all things right at last. Amen? Amen.